welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 184, The Chaos of Bad Governance. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And here's a sample of what the members are listening to right now. So far, we've covered a lot of Scandinavian life, but I still don't think you know enough about them to be able to create a realistic village in your next D&D campaign, because we really haven't touched upon how their society is organized. But rather, we've been focusing on more personal issues. So let's tackle some of those questions. And to begin, let's talk about a big part of life for pretty much any society. Economics. If you'd like to hear this episode and all the other previous members' episodes, you can become a member over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. It costs about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Rebecca, James, and Susan for signing up already. Around this time of the year, I get a few people asking how to give memberships as gifts. It's actually pretty easy to do. Just sign up for a membership as normal, and then send me an email to let me know who the membership is for and what their email address is. After that, I'll send that person a holiday greeting with all the members' material. And, of course, let them know who it came from. Easy peasy. I can also do birthdays, anniversaries, brisses. Really, whatever you need, I'm there for you. Just let me know. Alright, when we left off last time, we discussed the Viking raids of Paris and Hamburg, though they were far more than the raids we'd seen in the last 40 to 50 years. Now we're looking at fleets that number in the hundreds, and we're seeing the nobility on the continent, especially the Frankish nobility, hiring many of these men as mercenaries to fight against their local rivals. Western Europe was unraveling. And on the same year as those raids around 845, or maybe 848, because dating during this period is wonky. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle fills us in on what's going on in Britain. Here's what it has to say. Quote, This year, Alderman Ainwolf, with the men of Somersetshire, and Bishop Aylston, and Alderman Osric, with the men of Dorsetshire, fought at the mouth of the Parrot with the Danish army, and there, after making a great slaughter, obtained victory. End quote. That just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? So let's unpack that rather dry account of what is actually a rather significant moment in the British resistance to the Danes. What the scribes are telling us here is that Ailderman Ainwolf of Somerset brought his army to the mouth of the river Parrot, and there he met with the army of Ailderman Osric of Dorset. But Osric wasn't alone. He had with him Bishop Ailston who was the Bishop of Sherborne. What that means is that the Lord of Dorset and his local bishop had raised an army to support their neighbors in Somerset. While they were all part of Wessex, and thus it's not like this was a multi-kingdom coalition, it is still heartening to see the people of Britain working together, rather than sitting on their hands and hoping that they could take advantage of their neighbor's misfortune. Furthermore, the bishop was getting involved and likely his flock accompanied him. You might remember from earlier episodes that sometimes bishops would march around with virtual armies of their own, or, in the case of a few rather testy bishops, actual armies. It runs counter to how things operate in our modern day, but bishops back then had a significant amount of influence that went well beyond spiritual matters. 
They were politically, economically, and if they raised their levies, militarily powerful. They were essentially lords themselves. And so here, we see the Bishop of Sherborne acting in a way that a powerful landowning noble might do. This was all good news for the people of Somerset. And if it's not an isolated incident, but rather it's a sign of a cultural shift, it's good news for Britain in general. Because even though Britain had significantly fewer resources and less manpower to draw from, the development of a strong, unified defense on the part of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms could be quite formidable. And according to the Chronicle, at the River Parrot, they showed the Danes exactly how effective they could be. However, the Chronicle also tells us that there was great slaughter, which usually means a great deal of bloodshed on both sides. And this was problematic for the Anglo-Saxons. Their armies were still largely special forces. Small, highly trained, spectacularly dressed bands of warriors. They were the Werod, and the best among them were the Hearthwerod. Meanwhile, the armies that were pouring out of Scandinavia gives the impression that there were a great deal more trained warriors on hand, and that their society didn't have the same strict lines drawn between who would be trained to fight and who wouldn't be. Think about it this way. It would be like if all of Canada was trained to fight, and New Zealand only had their National Guard and the All Blacks. If Canada decided to kick up a fuss beyond their usual performance at the Winter Olympics, well, even if New Zealand came out swinging, it wouldn't be long before casualties would mount, and then they would just be politely overwhelmed by sheer numbers, and probably hockey sticks. That's roughly what we're dealing with here. So hearing about a great slaughter would be quite worrying, especially since the Danes were able to launch a fleet of 600 ships to Hamburg and 120 ships to Paris on that same year. We're looking at thousands upon thousands of warriors operating all throughout Western Europe. And even though just a small slice of them were coming to our shores, the military organization within the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms was straining under the weight. And there must have been some people who were wondering what would happen if the Danes turned their full force towards Britain. It was certainly a problem. But in Wessex, something interesting was happening. At about 846, King Aethelwulf and Lady Osburga had another son. Now, they were known for their fecundity. They'd been cranking out kids like it was going out of style. But King Aethelwulf at this point would have been between 36 and 54 years old at this point, depending on which sources you trust. And Osburga would have been about 36. So given their ages, this recent child was a rather shocking event. These days, parents in their late 30s aren't unheard of, and people are having kids in their 40s in increasing numbers. However, lifespans have lengthened significantly in the last about 1,200 years. We have access to consistent nutrition, advanced medicine, and antibiotics. So we're doing pretty good, but during the Middle Ages, extended fertility was a lot harder to come by. And not only was it a surprise that they could have a child this late, but it was also a bit worrying. I mean, this was their sixth child. And as we've talked about in other episodes, including some members' episodes, having kids is a serious physical event for the mother, even in our modern era. Having numerous kids places a great deal of strain upon a woman's body, 
which accounts for the rising rates of female mortality as they aged into their 30s during this era, and as they carry more and more kids. Not only that, but if Aethelwulf was 54, which he very well might have been, he'd already lived a very long life. He was elderly at this point. Sorry, Dad. And I know I'm going to get letters about this next point, but it needs to be said. Men's fertility doesn't last forever. As men age, they become infertile too. How do I explain this delicately? Their contribution to the pregnancy declines in quality, which leads to an increased chance of birth defects and health conditions, and a decreased overall chance of a viable pregnancy. I know that pop culture tells us that men are permanently 16, and that any problems they encounter can be solved with a blue pill. But the reality is that, just like women, men do age. And I bet you didn't expect to have the talk on a history channel, and you might be wondering why it's happening. Well, beyond the simple PSA message of, guys, you two are aging, and if you want to have a family, you can't play the field forever, there's also something historically important that's happening with all this biology. King Aethelwulf and Lady Osburga had pulled a Michael Douglas, and now they had a late-in-life child. Even if they were both in their mid-30s, it was pretty late in the game for them. Their youngest child was probably somewhere between 6 and 10 years old. And it's entirely possible that Aethelwulf was in his mid-50s, which would have made him practically ancient for the period. I mean, they had children who were entering adulthood. They should be done by now. Life should be winding down. But instead of moving to Boca and complaining about body piercings and tattoos like a normal retirement age couple, now they're back to square one and dealing with the sleepless nights and sheer exhaustion that comes with raising an infant. And you might be wondering if this was intentional. And the answer is, we don't know. It could have been planned, or it could have been a complete accident. But I suspect that the child was a bit of a shock to them. Not just because of the distance between this child and the others, but also because they eschewed their normal naming system. You'll remember that all of their previous children had taken the first part of their father's name, Aethel, which means noble. So all the kids were named things like Noble Council and Noble Boldness. The new kid, though, had a different kind of name. He wasn't named for his nobility. Instead, his name suggested something of the supernatural. The child was called Counseled by the Elves, or in the old Anglo-Saxon tongue, Alfred. That Alfred. We don't have any diaries that could explain why Aethelwulf and Osburga chose that name, but given his late arrival, how rare that sort of thing was, and how he was a rather sickly child right from the beginning, we could probably make a few guesses. He probably had a little bit of an otherworldly air to him. But here, in 846, or maybe 849, depending on your sources, Alfred has entered the story. And then, a few years passed without much to note. There were certainly raids occurring on the coastal and river locations, and I wonder what sort of effort was being put into building defenses behind the scenes. But as for political events, at least political events that the scribes thought it was worth to report, there just wasn't much until 848 or 849. 
And then there were a bunch of political shakeups in a short period of time. In 848, King Athelstan of East Anglia died, and you'll be forgiven if you don't remember who he was. Because we have had a lot of Athels lately. King Athelstan of East Anglia was the king who rumbled a bit with Mercia, and then became independent during the period where the Midlands just couldn't get their act together. And it was probably Athelstan and his warbands who killed the Mercian kings Bjornwolf and Ludeca back to back. Remember that series of butchered kings where I kept on using Bon Jovi in the background? That's the one, and it was probably his doing. And he did such a good job of it, actually, that it appears that the Mercians had learned their lesson, and just left Athelstan alone to rule in peace. But unfortunately, beyond those fights and a few coins, we know relatively little about him. But we do know that he died, and he was replaced by King Aethelweird at around this point in time. We don't know much about King Aethelweird either, nor the political situation he would have entered into. There were probably records of his rule, but due to events that I'll be describing in later episodes, those records were torched long before we got a chance to read them. So ultimately, we just don't know much. However, we can be fairly sure that King Aethelweird would have entered into a comparatively wealthy kingdom. Trade had made East Anglia a force to be reckoned with, especially now that Mercia was leaving it alone. However, their growing wealth was a double-edged sword, because there were people to the north who were all too aware of trade routes and were certainly taking notice of how rich the Eastern Kingdom was becoming. Meanwhile, to the north, there was another political shakeup. At some time around 848 or 849, King Aethelred II of Northumbria, who was the son of King Ainred of Northumbria, he was the guy who ruled for several decades of relative peace? Well, it's thought that at this point in history, Aethelred, son of Ainred, was assassinated. Maybe. Possibly, but maybe not. I mean, he was definitely assassinated, but the real question is when it happened. And actually, this controversy is a great spot to teach you about how the study of history works and how it's evolving. For the longest time, we knew for a fact that Aethelred II of Northumbria died in 848 or 849. And we knew this because we had 11th century records saying that King Aethelred II began his rule in the 840s, and he was killed at about 849. And the old way to study history was to look at what the written records had to say and take it on faith. The trouble is that just because something is written down doesn't make it true. I think that's obvious to all of us in the internet age, but it's actually a relatively recent concept in the study of history. In fact, for quite a while, it was hard to get anyone to even accept the possibility that written records might be wrong. And instead, when contradictory archaeological evidence came up, the records would be prioritized. But, in the modern era, that's all been changing. And now, rather than just looking at the written record as gospel, we look for supporting archaeological evidence. And if there's a conflict, we have discussions on the reliability of the bits of evidence that we have, rather than just going with the written material and ignoring everything else. And that is where the issue of King Aethelred II's murder gets sticky. The thing is that the archaeological evidence suggests that the written records might be off by about a decade. 
It all comes down to some coins that we've found that are dated to that period, and are linked to Aethelred II. So if the coins are properly dated, it raises the possibility that Aethelred II of Northumbria might not have reigned until the 850s, and wasn't killed until the 860s. And that throws the written record into contention. It also leaves us asking the question, did our source get the dates wrong? It wouldn't be the first time, after all. Or was there something different about the coins? Like, were they made after the fact? Or were they in reference to someone else that we don't see in the written records? A different Aethelred? Or are there other circumstances that could explain this? It's hard to say exactly what the truth is here, and I'll leave those questions to better qualified minds. But it is possible that this was the year that King Aethelred II, son of Ainred, was assassinated. Or it might have happened about a decade from this period. Now, as for why he was murdered, your guess is as good as mine. This whole situation is a big question mark. But we do know that after he was killed, another nobleman named Osbert took the throne of Northumbria. But it's not mentioned whether or not this was a coup, nor is it mentioned whether Osbert was involved. So this could be politically based. It is Northumbria, after all. Or it could be a blood feud. Or it could be something deeply personal, like an affair or a grudge. It could have been a random criminal act. Or it might have just been a drunken accident. We really don't know. But the important thing for us to take note of is it seems that Northumbria is continuing to be Northumbria. We still have a large number of rival dynasties, and it looks like the peaceful days of King Ainred are fully over, and regicide, internal strife, and chaos are the order of the day. And as we've been learning, the Northmen, especially the Danes, were paying attention, and thanks to the civil wars of Francia, they have a lot of experience in turning another kingdom's strife into their own advantage. And rounding out this tale of chaos in 848 and 849, we have Mercia and the story of Prince Wigstan. Now, there's some dynastic politicking going on here, but stick with me. I'm going to try and make this as clear as possible. Do you remember old King Wiglaf? He was the king of Mercia who was wise enough to avoid marching on East Anglia. Well, he had a son named Wigmund. And wanting to make sure that his line was secure, King Wiglaf married his son to the daughter of former King Cholwulf, the deposed king of Mercia who reigned several years before Wiglaf. And her name was Aelflaed. So we have Wiglaf merging his dynasty, the Wig dynasty, with the dynasty of another powerful Mercian royal family, the Sea dynasty. And it was a smart match for the Wig dynasty, because there was a large fortune in the hands of Aelflaed's cousin, Quenthrith, and she had no heirs, meaning that if she died, that fortune would go to Aelflaed, and naturally that would go to the Wig dynasty through her husband, Wigmund. So everything here was going according to plan. Wigmund and Aelflaed even had a son, who they named Wigstan. The line was getting secure, until tragedy struck. Wigman died. We aren't sure how, but it was a pretty catastrophic loss for the Wig dynasty, because it left King Wiglaf with no direct heir except for his very young grandson. And then the problems for the dynasty compounded, because King Wiglaf died. 
the Mercians weren't going to put a child on the throne. And so a nobleman named Bertwulf, who was probably from the B dynasty, took the throne. So this is our third dynasty that we're dealing with. Are you still with me? Okay, so Quenthrith was still alive and kicking, but she was also still heirless, which meant that Aelflaed was due to inherit a tremendous amount of money, and that wealth, combined with the fact that Wigstan was a member of both the Wig dynasty and the Sea dynasty, and the grandson of two separate kings, well, adding that money to all of that would place him in a very powerful position in Mercian politics. And that was not exactly welcome news for King Bertwulf, who was doing his best to ensure that the B dynasty held power in Mercia, and specifically that his son Bertfrith would inherit the throne after his death. So he hatched a plan. His son, Prince Bertfrith, would marry the widow Aelflaed, and thereby cut Wigstan out of any potential inheritance. Not only that, but if Aelflaed had a child with Bertfrith, then the B and C dynasties would be linked, and the Whig dynasty would be cut out entirely. And because this was Britain in the Middle Ages, it wasn't all that important what poor Aelflaed thought of this. Legally, it wasn't her call. Instead, it was her male guardian's decision. And because her husband was dead, and her father was dead, that responsibility fell upon her son. Wigstan. So a council was called at Wigginstow, and Wigstan was invited. Prince Bertfrith was there, as were a number of other Mercian nobles, and the main issue to be handled was the question of marriage between Prince Bertfrith and Wigstan's mother. And how awkward is that? Wigstan has to be the one who figures this out? And not only that, but Aelflaed's wishes probably weren't on Wigstan's mind. Not because he was a bad son or an awful person, but simply because the politics of the time were high stakes in zero sum. The inequality of the time was so extreme that the nobility were constantly trying to stay on top, because any misstep could mean disaster for the entire family. Don't forget that while we only hear of the headliners of these families, we're looking at large extended families that rely upon their dynasty's success. A lot was riding on the line with this matter. So, the thing that was almost certainly on the forefront of Prince Wigstan's mind, and the minds of its advisors, was the fact that this wedding could weaken his chances at claiming the crown, and would potentially end his family's political future. But that being said, there was a cold reality within Anglo-Saxon politics. If you anger someone, especially if you anger the king, you could end up paying with your life. So Wigstan had to play this very carefully. He explained that because Prince Bertfrith was his godfather and his father's kinsman, he just could not grant such a union. It was out of his control. The thing is that godfathers were serious business. It was seen as at least on the same level as blood, or possibly even higher. So Wigstan was basically saying, look, Bert, this is in the 700s. We can't marry family members anymore. God forbids it. So I'd love to have you as my stepfather, but we're already family. You're my godfather. So I have to say no. It was a politic solution to the problem. The trouble was that Prince Bertfrith wasn't that big on politics. And so he whacked Wigstan over the head. And then his courtiers, 
presumably going, oh God, what if he lives, drew out their swords and started stabbing the bejesus out of him. That could have gone better. And the wedding was definitely off now. Ilflade, who never even got the chance to weigh in on whether or not she wanted to get married, was now in mourning, burying her son. And she had only recently buried her father and her husband. And this most recent death, and the choices that led to it, were completely out of her hands. The lack of agency in her life, and the lives of women in general during this era, is striking. Now, once the body was collected, Prince Wigstan was buried at Repton, which was the same place where King Aethelbald was buried. And a cult was quickly formed around him. He soon became Saint Wigstan, and you can still see the remains of his shrine today if you go there. But the formation of a cult was actually really intelligent, because the treatment of Wigstan as a family saint actually strengthened his family's position. So this wasn't just a tragic event for Aelflaed and the Whig dynasty. It was also a disastrous move on the part of Prince Bertfrith. His line was now in a worse position than it had been before. He probably should have just accepted the rejection gracefully. And as if to hammer home how stupid this move was, King Aethelwulf of Wessex appears to have spotted the internal strife that was occurring within Mercia and he realized that with that degree of instability, they likely couldn't do much to stop a West Saxon seizure of land. They were on the verge of civil war, so it wasn't like they could handle another war with Wessex. So, Aethelwulf took the opportunity to claim the long-disputed and wealthy Berkshire territory from Mercia. That land would now be West Saxon, and Mercia's collapse continued to worsen. All because someone couldn't be a grown-up and drown the rejection in booze like the rest of us. Alright, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And why don't you join us on Twitter? We're at British Podcast. Or if you're not into Twitter, you should probably get into Twitter. But still, if you're not into Twitter, you can go and join all the other communities. And we have links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Alright, thanks for listening.